Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I will be very honest and say that the wiring that you are given at birth combined with the formative years and what you're taught about how the world works is very hard to change. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I also think that people who really strive to be successful for whatever definition of their of success it is have to start with a deep self-knowledge and deep reflection and mindfulness and understanding of uh, uh, of how they interpret the reality around them and um, and what they do with that information and that is a lifelong thing that's a practice it's not a thing you learn it's not a change you go through it is a practice that you get better at forever um, and, and frankly, admitting that you're always going to be a beginner at it, that you always will have more to learn, I think is, is the key to becoming mature. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now, with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeff, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I actually came across you uh, by way of our an- series of animated shorts when Chris Saka tweeted it, and then I saw that you retweeted it. And uh, as I was just saying before we officially hit record here, uh, you know, the thing that always makes me choose people is curiosity. And when I started going down the rabbit hole, I became very curious about all the things that you've been up to. So uh, on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led you to all the things that you're up to now. My goodness, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> um, sure. So I have spent the last two decades uh, uh, pra- uh, as a practicing designer uh, working on the web. And um, I, I've done that um, uh, primarily, well, actually swinging back and forth between big companies and then smaller things that I've started myself. Uh, so I kind of got started with all of that back in the nineties when I first got a job at Wired magazine, helping them build their first website. Um, so I have a sort of almost notorious claim to fame of having, uh, designed or designed and built one of the first web banners, uh, on the web, kind of got all of that started. We were one of the first, if I, I don't think we were actually the first to put a, uh, commercial, uh, uh, advertisement on a web page, but we were pretty darn close. So um, so I did that for a bunch of years, and that was really where I learned the practice of design and um, learned so much about what was possible with the web because just, I mean, think about it. It's in 1994. Uh, there were very few people online and even fewer who knew anything about the technology at all. So, uh, So that was sort of a remarkable experience, not just from the opportunity to learn and create so much of the basic understanding of how web the web would work, uh, but also for being at a place like Wired Magazine back then, which I think probably had similar qualities to maybe Rolling, Rolling Stone in the late 60s. You know what I mean? It just felt like this epicenter of stuff happening. Um, so that was a, just an excellent place to start a career. Um, Wired uh, split in half between the, the 
the magazine, the, the physical magazine, which was sold to Condé Nast, and then all the digital properties, uh, which were actually sold to Lycos. And so I went to this big internet search portal thing called Lycos and worked there for like nine months and that didn't work out at all. So <laughs> it was, um, it was a, it was a very weird place and it was a very weird time. And that was right around when the big sort of dot com bust happened. Uh, so I took a little time off at that point, wrote a couple books on web design, um, and did a lot of speaking at conferences at the time and then started a, a consulting company, a design agency focused on user experience, uh, which kind of set us apart. That, uh, that company was called Adaptive Path. And that kind of set us apart from a lot of the agencies at the time, which were really focused on, you know, advertising and design in that real visual sense, uh, that sort of, uh, uh, creative agency sense. And instead we were much more focused on research, uh, user research and research methods for, for producing, uh, interfaces to products that would be more intuitive and effective. And we did that through, uh, usability testing and contextual inquiry and uh, lots of ethnography and stuff like that. So, uh, so that was a blast. We did that for, well, that company actually ran for like 12 years. It was sold recently. I, I hadn't been active in it. I was on the board, but hadn't been active in it for a long time. But that was sold recently to Capital One, which is a whole other interesting story. <laughs> um, but while we were there, um, it was sort of those those days that we now refer to as Web 2.0, when products like Blogger and Flickr and uh, and uh, upcoming and you know th- stuff like that was was really had a lot of steam behind it. We worked on a lot of those projects. I did a uh, a great redesign of Blogger along with Evan Williams uh, back before they got sold to Google. Um, stuff like that. Uh, and and while we were doing that, we said maybe we could do the same thing. And I sort of pitched to my partners, what if we did a project? Uh, as a product rather than just consulting services. And we went for it and we built a product that um, never actually quite got to launch. We got into beta. It was called Measure Map and it was an analytics tool just for bloggers. Um, took a very, very different visual and, and sort of user experience approach to analytics. Uh, I, I remember at the time we were sort of competing against those. You remember those like odometers people would put on their websites, mm-hmm. the hit counter things? Um, yeah, so, so we did something very different. Um, but right before we were about to launch it, uh, Google made us an offer to come and work on a, and take the work that we had done so far and apply it to a new project that they were spinning up. So we did that. We, we were acquired by Google. Um, not the whole adaptive path company, but me and a team of, uh, of engineers went over to Google and then worked on Google Analytics. Um, uh, that was, we sort of design, conceived of and designed that product while at Google, uh, which again was just a remarkable experience. Um, uh, stayed at Google for a couple of years, uh, and then, uh, wanted to go back to something small and entrepreneurial. So, um, much of the team that built Measure Map and then Google Analytics came with me and we started a product, uh, called Measure, uh, sorry, called Typekit. Which, uh, brought fonts to the web for the first time. That was, a, there was a bit of, uh, technical, uh, innovation that happened inside the browsers that allowed web fonts for the very first time to become, uh, a thing designers could use. Uh, but the foundries who own the intellectual property for the fonts were worried about, uh, rampant piracy. Uh, and so we built this sort of hosted service in between the two of them and, um, and, uh, and that did really, really well. So we, we ran that for about three years, uh, and then were acquired by Adobe. Uh, and I just spent the last, then another three years working as the vice president of design for Adobe through the transition to Creative Cloud. 
so that um, kind of brings us up to today. And for the la- I, I've left Adobe now, and for the last few months, I've been uh, what I, what we decided to call design partner at uh, True Ventures, which is a venture capital firm here in San Francisco and Palo Alto. Um, they were the investors in Typekit. I got to know them really well, and now I'm on the other side of the table on the investment side. Okay, cool. So I have that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. So I have literally <laughs> hundreds of questions for you. Okay. Uh, so you know, one of the things I, I really love doing is actually looking back prior to the start of somebody's career and into the earlier parts of their life, like childhood, growing up, uh, people, influences, parents. I mean, are there things when you look back at your life that ultimately you think it kind of shaped and influenced who you became in your career? Oh my goodness. I should lay down on this couch. Yeah, and, you should and talk to you about it. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's inevitable, right? That that yeah. kind of stuff uh, happens. Um, I, I think, uh, I don't know, there's a couple of things that really stand out. One of the, uh, I remember this really vividly, this like, I think I was in the third or fourth grade when we like had to write a short story um, and it could be about anything we wanted. And um, and uh, I remember just really enjoying, I don't even remember what the story is about, but really enjoying the process and writing twice as much as any of the other kids in my class and having the teacher select it and read it to the class. And I remember the, like, the kids being so into it and laughing at, at when they were supposed to and, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that being really infectious. And I think it was then that I thought maybe my job should be a writer. Uh, and it was. And I, uh, eventually, like I went through school and and basically got A's in anything where I could tell a story and kind of C's and D's and almost everything else. <laughs> uh, so like sort of classic, just liberal arts education kind of optimized for what I was good at there. Um, but I left school with a degree in journalism uh, as a result. Um, and I think it was that ability to sort of step back, organize a set of either facts or events or whatever has happened into a compelling narrative that was something I always wanted to do. And to be perfectly honest, that's no different than how I think I've always practiced design as well, mm-hmm. is that we have all of these, let's just say, technical capabilities that we want to present to people, but we don't get to be there when they see them. So we have to organize them in a way that they can sort of be self-sufficient in understanding how to use all of this stuff. Uh, and I think that's a that's a much more of an interaction design approach to design than a necessarily a graphic approach to design, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more about trying to communicate a, a story through the arrangement of in, interface elements that allows people to accomplish something. Um, uh, maybe maybe that's more connected to visual design than I think. But regardless, I I, I think that approach of we're trying to tell a story, we're trying to communicate with people, and that understanding of your audience and that empathy for your audience all comes from me from early in my life wanting to tell stories. Hmm. So you said two things in there. Uh, one is that the sense that you found was really infectious and it translated into you know being able to create compelling narratives. I'm really interested in how someone might do that regardless of what their work is. Uh, how do we do that in our lives on sort of a bigger scale? No, that's a big question. Um, but like I have kids now and one of my goals with my kids is that the two things that I really want to impart on them are, are how to communicate clearly and how to collaborate effectively. I think doesn't matter what job you're in at all. If you can do those two things, I think you have uh, um, the foundation to be successful. Um, and so uh, I think the, the one of the key words from the last answer I gave you was empathy. Mm-hmm. 
And I think uh, that has a tremendous amount to do with it, which is this understanding of how what you want is going to be perceived by somebody else, especially if you're trying to motivate them uh, into some kind of action, is the one, one of the most vital skills you could possibly learn. And, and, and that applies both to collaborating with people uh, as well as communicating to people. And, um, and I think it, it, it comes down to anything from typing into a Slack channel to speaking up in a meeting to sitting down with somebody and trying to solve a problem at the whiteboard. I think all of those are basically the same skills of understanding who I'm with, who is my audience here, uh, and what is the most effective way for them that I can communicate what I need or that I can work with them to get so that we can both achieve something. So, you know, as we mentioned, you know, you found me via the Tim Ferriss video. And one of the things I always wonder about is, uh, you know, the idea of finding this later in life, uh, this thing that's infectious and compelling, this thing that we're so drawn to, uh, especially when, you know, you've grown up in an environment in which square pegs were forced into to round holes and, you know, there were a lot of expectations and you just basically did what was expected. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, it took me many, many years to get over my education. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is true. So I, I also, I mean, I think another compelling part of the story, almost the anti-pattern to, uh, you know, what inspired you when you were young was that I grew up in a, a really conservative religious environment. Um, and, uh, I will set aside any like judgment around religion or the way that people live their lives enti- entirely. I think that's um, that's uh, that's a hundred percent up to any individual. But for me, it was it ended up being a, a significantly negative experience, one in which uh, you know the, the the there were no there were no answers to any questions of why. Mm-hmm. Right? There was no sense of uh, curiosity or creativity when it came to why we were supposed to do things. We did them uh, because that was how they were supposed to be done, because those were the rules. Uh, and the rules were really hard to decipher. Uh, you only really knew if you got them wrong. <laughs> and, um, and so creating this environment of, of trying to learn and explore the world when if you make the wrong choice, there's punishment is, is I think, probably the antithesis to how to live a curious and creative life. And, um, and again, this is just my experience from growing up that way, but it, but, it, but it did, it took me a long time to really shake that off. Hmm. You know, to me, one of the things that's been really interesting is, uh, with the, the evolution of the web and sort of the democratization of it and the ability for all of us to create that drastically changed, you know, my entire relationship with what the internet was like. And, uh, I think we, we've sort of gotten rid of this gap between creativity and technology that used to be there in sort of the early 90s when you had to have certain skills if you wanted to create something. And that being gone now, I think, is really starting to change the world. I'm not sure it's it's gone. It's not I, gone I, entirely. Yeah, but I think we're closing the gap, yeah. right? And honestly, like a lot of the work that I found, found really compelling while I was at Adobe was this idea of democratizing our tools, mm-hmm. right? To take them out of the the hands of the very powerful and put them into the hands of everybody because, oh my God, look what happens, right? And right, so maybe just a f- six months, maybe even less, uh, or fewer uh, months before I got to Adobe was when Instagram was acquired by um, 
Facebook. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I said in one of the first big executive meetings I was in was that a billion people are using Photoshop filters every day and they're not doing it in Adobe products. Yeah. They're doing it in this little mobile app on a tiny screen, but they're expressing themselves creatively using exactly the kind of tools and technology that we make and um, and none of it has anything to do, frankly, with photo manipulation or compositing or any of the power that we think these tools have. It is 100% about connecting with other people and expressing yourself in a way that resonates. And that was really powerful. You know, that is really powerful. So, um, so yeah, I think closing that gap between the technical sophistication you need and the ability to make output that represents how you feel or see the world, I think that's one of the most powerful things we can work on. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So, you know, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the time at Wired because, you know, I was at, at Berkeley probably while all of this was going on. I graduated Berkeley December 2000. So yep. I, I remember, you know, watching the internet unfold, thinking that we were all going to graduate and become millionaires a year after we graduated, only to graduate, you know, right after the bubble burst. Right. But the part that I'm really actually intrigued by is, you know, you mentioned that it was like being at Rolling Stones in the 60s. So I'm curious. You know, what are the kinds of lessons in branding, storytelling, uh, and creativity, uh, and even, you know, working with people that came from that time uh, at Wired that has influenced and shaped the rest of your career? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's also a good question. Um, I mean, one, one of the things was that I, it was just, it seems so surreal to be starting my career, uh, in a place where the media was coming just to look at us. Like there, there would be literally two or three times a week where there'd be some camera crew roaming around the, the office taking pictures of like the, you know, these crazy dot com kids that are making this magazine that's taking over media or whatever the story happened to be. Um, you know, because this, this is time when CNN was doing its first stories on what this information superhighway was going to be and how are we all going to live in cyberspace? You remember all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, well, send a camera crew over to Wired and take some pictures over there. So it was like that all the time. And, uh, there were just, you know, celebrities in the office all of the time. So it was weird. It was, uh, and exciting and intoxicating and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but one of the things that I found most, uh, but one of the things that really stuck with me was uh, the way that Louis Rossetto, who is the founder of the magazine, talked about competition. Um, and it really influenced a lot of the way that I've approached, frankly, business uh, over these last 20 years. Because he saw the, the move to the web as not something that we sh- – like that the learning that we did around that should not be considered proprietary. That we should share and evangelize the web and everything we've learned about it as much as we possibly can because our competition is not other websites. It's not CNET or ZDNet or whatever we perceived as our competition back then. He said our competition is television, newspapers. The old way the world was is the competition for the new way the world should be. So we should invest our energy into sort of creating that ecosystem into popularizing the web as the way the future should be, the network, the internet. And anything we can do to help anybody make more of it is only going to make the, the playing field even bigger and, be, and as a result will be even more successful. And that fundamentally changed the way I thought. 
It's not that we need to get more page views than those people or we need to sell more ads than them. It's that we have to change the way people think that it's not a zero-sum competition, but that there's more and more and more because it's digital. We can consume more. We can make more. And, um, and I remember having that foundation when we started Adaptive Path, right? And, adapt, and most consulting companies would keep their process and methodology and stuff pretty close to the chest. And we set with a fundamental value of all of our methodology, everything we do, even the deliverables that we create or the templates for those deliverables, we're going to make all of that public. Anybody can download it. We will make videos of everything and distribute them anywhere we can because the value is in our time and attention coming to your company. So we would do these workshops and these, uh, and we would go out and speak at conferences and we would just share like, here's how, here's a great user research method that we've, that we've honed and, and, um, and perfected and whatever. And, and, and you should do the same thing. And people would try it and say, wow, that's, it's it's really compelling, but it's hard. Come do it for us. So it was great marketing, but it was marketing from a place of sharing everything we knew. And I have just held on to that. That was how we marketed Typekit too. Like here's everything we know about web fonts and here's how you can do it. But of course, it's easier if you just use our service. You know what I mean? Like that has been uh, one of the fundamental principles that I took way back from the early days at Wired. Hmm. So – one of the things that's interesting to me is that you've literally been on every side of what you could be in, in all of these situations. Like you've been an employee, you've been uh, an entrepreneur yourself, and now you know, you're on the investment side. And the part that I'm really in, intrigued by and very curious by is, is you know, the psychology and mindset required to navigate each one of those successfully because it's clear you've done each of them very well and how well, different they are across all of them. Uh, I would say I tried to do my best. I don't know <laughs> if they're all if they're all done very well. Um, specifically, when it comes to being an employee, I have kind of a hard time doing that. Um, uh, <laughs> the larger the company, the, the the harder it is, I think. Um, but uh, one way to look at it is that I've certainly one narrative, I guess, that I've had throughout my career is the constant striving to overcome constraint mm-hmm. and looking for any opportunity to do better work. Um, so I have, yeah, um, every, every time, you know, you could think of it as a step function up, right? People call that career ladder promotions or whatever. I don't really think about it that way because it tends to be so different every time, but ultimately it is an increase in responsibility. And each time that I've, I've, tried to increase my responsibility, it has been because I have been frustrated by the inability to create a great user experience for the product that I'm working on. And that is because something is in the way of that happening. And, and if you think about it, I'm sure if you have designers uh, or, or product managers or engineers listening to your podcast have been in this situation before where we know what the right answer is, but you get ru- you run into a roadblock because, well, yeah, that would be great if we could do that, but our business model just won't support it. Mm-hmm. Or that would be awesome, but the partnership that we're having has, you know, the, has these terms in it, and the other company won't agree to that, so we can't do that. You're like, ah, but that's the right – That's ah, this is how we should be doing it, but we can't because of those things. Well, though, all of those things, those, those legal requirements, the terms of service, the business model and the formulas and the, the biz dev relationships, the partnerships, all of that stuff – combines to create a user experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the success that Apple has had with the iPhone, so much of that success 
comes from the freedom they have in design because their supply chain is so amazing. Right? How many other companies are like, oh, well, yeah, I'd love to be able to design it that way, but we just can't. Like it would be way too expensive. We don't have the uh, – you know, we can't get the manufacturers to do this, this, and this and all that kind of stuff. If you solve the problem all the way at the root of the problem from a design, from a user experience and user-centered perspective – you have all this opportunity to create amazing experiences on top of that. So that's where that, that always motivated my career. Like uh, it, very early in my career, I would run up against technical limitations. Oh, you can't do that with this kind of database. And that to me was uh, handed to me as, uh, it, as this immutable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Similar to like going back to my discussion of religion as a child. This, it, it's immutable. It can't be changed. This is the way it's got to be. But that's never true, right? Especially if you are c- collaborating with the people on the technical side and you f- both fundamentally believe that the goal is the user experience. The goal is not a scalable database. The goal is the best user experience. So let's find a way to solve that problem however we can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and each step up as I've gone through my career is around trying to be in a position of responsibility to be able to put a user-centered methodology in the decision making at every level. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So that desire to change the seemingly immutable thing, you think that that is something that can be learned and developed or is it inherently built into certain people? Oh, I don't know how much is built into people really, right? I think I will be very honest and say that the wiring that you are given at birth combined with the formative years and what you're taught about how the world works is very hard to change. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I also think that people who really strive to be successful for whatever definition of of success it is have to start with a deep self-knowledge and deep reflection and mindfulness and understanding of uh, of how they interpret the reality around them and um, and what they do with that information and that is a lifelong thing that's a practice it's not a thing you learn it's not a change you go through it is a practice that you get better at forever um, and and frankly admitting that you're always going to be a beginner at it that you always will have more to learn I think is is the key to becoming mature why do you think that uh, this practice of deep self-knowledge uh, isn't something that we're introduced to much earlier in life. Because I, I can tell you that the kinds of things that you and I are talking about, they were never really put on the table when I was in college at Berkeley. It was a very linear, achievement-oriented path and no questioning any of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, to some to some extent, we can kind of blame our educational system. Yeah. An educational system that was developed and, and optimized for uh, an industrial process, right? Like essentially our education system is designed to make more factory workers. It's not, uh, uh, it's not a place to explore creativity mm-hmm. necessarily. And they, they show that with studies, right? That you test kids on a creativity scale at five years old versus 10 versus 15. And it's just drops and drops and drops. Um, and, um, and that's how it has traditionally been. There's so, it's so much better now than it was when I was a kid, mm. uh, in school. Um, but that's it. You're going to memorize a bunch of stuff and you're going to write it down on a piece of paper and you're going to do that for 12 years and then you're going to go to college. And, and so I think it, 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 it was something that was, that, that was taught out of us. Um, and the fact that there's diversity in styles of learning and that's reflected in diversity of education, um, is a wonderful thing that's happening now. But then I see like, you know, the common core and the testing and all that kind of stuff. And if, and it's still fairly depressing, um, about how we just teach for rote memory, uh, as opposed to teaching those two things, making kids excellent communicators and teaching them how to collaborate with people. So you've made the shift from, uh, entrepreneur to employee to investor, and you've kind of gone between all three of these things. One of the things I'm curious about is uh, the process of managing your own psychology as a founder, uh, especially because you've kind of accomplished what many of us would think 
you know, sort of is defined as success by Silicon Valley standards. I mean, two acquisitions by big companies. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, one, you know, what your entire process and mindset is around running and starting companies in those early days. Do you have a vision for, you know, this is what I'm aiming for? Uh, and then, you know, were there challenges or is it just sort of a, a smooth ride up to where you landed? No, no, it's not never a smooth ride. Yeah. Um, but the, the, it, it, the challenges sort of blur all blur into one, one story of, of, you know, there's sort of this up and down, the sine wave, but ultimately like it's heading up and to the right. Um, if you zoom out far enough, uh, is what it feels like. But, the but to get to the, the psychology of it, um, one of there, there's two really important things that, that I think, um, are absolutely necessary for kind of any creative pursuit, but certainly for building products in a startup environment. And, and that is one, everybody needs to believe that they're working towards some higher purpose. And two, uh, we need to create an environment in which everybody trusts one another. And if you can achieve those two things, I think that, uh, that is part of the recipe for success for, um, getting the most creative work out of somebody that you possibly can, uh, yourself included. Mm-hmm. So the higher purpose one, I think, is a really big deal, right? Like in our earlier in our conversation today, we we were talking about um, this idea of democratizing the the tools for creative expression. What a great higher purpose! Yeah. Like, yes, actually, what I'm doing is designing the font menu in Photoshop, but the higher purpose here is is this idea that anybody can be a creator and anybody can be a maker, and we're empowering them, and it's going to change people's lives by doing that. That's the motivation to try iteration 15 of this stupid font menu and it's not coming out right. <laughs> like, right, you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, the, the, the motivation is not to hit the quarterly numbers because we're a public company. The right. motivation is not to um, even to uh, ship uh, something that you think is beautiful. The motivation, the higher order, the purpose of all of this is the change that we believe that this product can make in the world because we have a set of values and we're all working towards those same values. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could zoom all the way out when it came to Typekit and say that, look, I fundamentally believe that if you look at, a, at history at a large enough scale, that the way in which civilization progresses is through literacy, which is that I can sh- like write something down, you can read it, and it allows me to extend my ideas out beyond both time and space. You can read it long after I'm dead in a whole other part of the world. And that most of the technology that we have developed is designed specifically to enable that to happen more efficiently. That's a pretty big purpose. How does Typekit fit in? We're helping the web, which is our most current iteration of this technology of sharing ideas, to uh, more effectively communicate by bringing centuries worth of typography into the the daily communication that people are having. Well, that's, that's a huge purpose. And, and we're 15 people sitting all in the same room, uh, starting our company and hoping we're going to get another round of funding. But the reason that we're doing this work is for that higher purpose. So I think that's part of the necessary ingredient. You just, you just gotta have that. Um, I think if you're on some kind of like sales driven treadmill, um, that's motivating to some people, but I don't think that pulls the best creative work out of people. The, the second part then is that trust, uh-huh. right? That means I can have any idea and I should feel safe to be able to share that idea in a way that is not uh, going to cr- create consequences for my career or my job or anything like that. 
that I can have whatever idea and I feel like this place is safe enough and these people, I trust them, that they know I can say something that is frankly this act of this huge act of vulnerability, that I can say this, propose this, and that it's going to be okay. And then there's just there's tons of techniques to make that um, uh, to create those kinds of spaces. But ultimately, that should be your goal. Can I do I feel like there's some weird hierarchy here and I'm not allowed to say something? Or is there such an, uh, a a a like uh, a culture of competition and and intellectual dominance that I'm not that I'm going to feel stupid if if my idea is laughed at? You know, all those sorts of things. Um, I strive for, for a culture in the teams that I work with where um, none of that is a factor. How has um, having success uh, you know, at, at these levels uh, altered your internal narrative around money and wealth, hmm. if it has? Um, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure it has. I, I, I reflected a lot on that around the type kit uh, days, especially um, – when raising money uh, and then spending that money uh, and then selling the company uh, eventually. Um, and, you know, when I was really, really honest with myself, it had less to do with, with wealth and it had more to do with reputation that I, I, I felt much more motivated not to fail than I felt motivated to make a bunch of money. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I would say for better or worse, our industry uh, is driven by reputation. That is coming out of Google, having started a company and sold it there uh, and having the, the trust of the team that I did that with so much so that they quit their jobs at Google to, to come out. Like having uh, those cards on the table was made it incredibly easy to raise money for a new thing, no matter how speculative it was. And there were plenty of meetings where I sat down with people who said, so let me get this straight. People are going to pay for the, the shapes of the letters. <laughs> and that was you know, like, it's a, in the, in the world of technology, in the world of venture capital, uh, saying I wanted to start a font company was, uh, uh, was, uh, we were covering a lot of fresh territory. Let me just say that. Yeah. Uh, so coming at it and saying, don't worry about all of that. Trust me, I can build it. Was the reputation, um, and, and and a cultivation of reputation over time, um, and a set of accomplishments in my past, and I put all of that on the line, and as did my co-founders, we put all of that on the line to say, look, write me this check, let me do this thing, trust me, and um, and. The, obviously, the way to measure the success over time was how much of that money or what multiple of that money did we return. But to me, it was this is another step in a, in a lifelong career. I don't want to mess this up because of the hit it would take to my reputation. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I want them to think I, I'm, I want to be perceived as a safe bet. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's some heavy stuff to carry around every day. Yeah, I can only imagine. So uh, it's incredibly motivating, but it it instilled in me this drive to want to win as well. Um, again, not in that competitive way because ultimately I felt like uh, the goal here is to bring fonts to the web, um, and we are going to contribute a large portion of that. But we're not going to we're not going to have a hundred percent of that market. And any good work we can do, other people will leverage. I know that. So, um, but uh, but it, yeah, it. It was the thing that motivated, made it, pardon me, motivated me to want the, 
all of us in the, on the Typekit team to go faster mm-hmm. um, and to be first and to get it out there uh, was around, yeah, was around reputation. You know, it's interesting to hear you say this because I've been thinking about this essay, uh, which I'm, chances are you've probably read since it went pretty much viral on Medium, was the one that uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen wrote uh, yeah. called Reconsider about yeah. how your life starts to change drastically when you take investor money and uh, all of these things. And, you know, it, because I think we live in a culture that glamorizes the idea of unicorns and venture funding. Yeah. And you know, reading that was so eye opening to me. And I, I thought, huh, maybe that's not what we really want. Well, yes, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> you you can at some level just say it's a it's an investment vehicle. Yeah, it's it's a method of capitalizing. Um, you you know the same uh, similar to the method you use to capitalize your home mm-hmm. when you go to get a mortgage, right? <laughs> to to some degree, like one is much more uh, institutionalized than the other, but it is just a method. Yeah, uh, and there are many methods. Um, and I and I. I don't know if that article in particular was so much about that method is bad as it uh, as it was critiquing the media surrounding it, yeah, right? The hype I think surrounding that's, it. That's that's a good way of looking at it. And, and saying like we we have very much glamorized this uh, so much so that we're now skewering it, like we're parodying it with the you know this, the HBO show Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. like you know it, it has become such a part of our culture. Um, but I don't think it's anything new, right? Yeah. I think there were probably articles written like that for all the people that were getting on boats to go to San Francisco to get up into gold country in the 1840s, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, I'm sure that wave was, uh, was there, there were just as many people saying, don't go west, stay here, that's ridiculous, nobody's going to get rich, you know, or whatever, right? Um, so, yeah, like, and, and so now a large part of my job is sitting down with entrepreneurs um, primarily, so True Ventures is a seed stage investor. That means we are generally, uh, by and large, our model is first money in, mm-hmm. the very first check that um, that that some very small group of people is is going to get. And it's really important to talk about: Are you sure this is the path? Mm-hmm. Right? Do you know what the path means? Do you know what this decision that you're about to make sets you in a direction? That, that is virtually impossible to get out of, which is fine. We, it, it is a way to build a bunch of companies. Like I wrote a blog post after the Typekit acquisition about this process. And I said it's very rare that you know, people – that you, you can build something of scale uh, by in, entirely by bootstrapping it. I mean yeah. even 37 Signals who made Basecamp and Campfire and all those mm-hmm. fantastic tools initially funded it by doing consulting work. Right, like it's not like they all decided for two years not to get paid so that they could build something, right? Or were able to make something so simple that initially got enough revenue traction that that can then build on top of that revenue. Those things are generally pretty rare because people are not in a position of being able to build something for free until it starts making revenue. That's just even Typekit, which launched in beta with paid plans, right? Still took us nine months of development to get to that point. And very few people can do that, right? Yeah. By just saying, like, okay, I can go nine months without getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's there are many ways to build a business. One of the ways that we have developed is this thing that has become part of the zeitgeist now, part of the the way we see the world and glamorize the world. Um, 
but it's not the, I, I totally agree. It's not the only way. It's just really hard. Cause like you can't, you can't spin up health insurance for somebody at 10 cents an hour. Like you can spin up web servers. Yeah. You, 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 you got to commit to people who are going to help you build this, that you can, that, that they can continue to live their life. So, so I have a question that I've asked a handful of people, uh, and you know, given your vantage point, it's, it's going to be, I, I'm really curious to hear what you're going to say about this. You know, I've heard Chris Sakis say probably a dozen times that the one thing that he has said about all his successful founders is that they have an inevitability of success about them, uh, that they believe in the inevitability of the success of what they're working on. And I'm curious if people can, if, if that is something that's learned or is that just something that happens as a byproduct of, of who these people are? Hmm. I, I don't know if it's something that's learned or if it's something that's innate. Uh, I don't know what series of, of, uh, circumstances led up to me feeling that way. Um, I, but again, going all the way back to my childhood, I see it in even all of my report cards Mm -hmm. where there were either A's or there were low marks. There was nothing in between because I would find something and I would obsess on it and, and I would spend all of my time working on that. And so, uh, geometry was one of the things that I got, that I got obsessed about and got all A's in and while I was failing Spanish, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so when, um, when, the pieces started falling into place and, I, and they all happened seemingly by coincidence that um, we had just left Google and learned all about systems of enormous scale at the same time that the web browser started implementing web fonts and there was this sur- and it tied into my history where I had worked with the W3C on web standards and I was like, do, do you guys see this? Like this, it's how... Like, how is not everybody just building web font service? It's, it's obvious we should be doing this right now. Like, there's no other thing we could possibly be doing. Look at this, you know? Um, I understood that in a way that if I had understood the amount of work that it would take to actually make the thing, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could ever have, like, taken the first few steps. But those first few steps were the clearest path I could possibly see and, and had ever seen up until that point in my life. It was, uh, this weird convergence of a bunch of stuff that seemed totally random, but of course in retrospect, it's not. Um, but it just felt like, holy, holy crap. Like I remember sitting in a room with three other, my my three other co-founders saying, you guys, we're, we're already behind. Like (laughs) I have thought about this literally all weekend and we're behind. We got to start writing code right now. (laughs) It just was, um, it was that kind of, um, imperative. Uh, for sure. Now I, again, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why I'm like that. Um, one of it, one of the things that I'm very self-aware of is this, uh, almost this phobia, this almost terror of being bored and I will do anything in my power to avoid being bored. And that, uh, sometimes has made me a really bad employee. Like you're a manager and you've got 20 people that report to you and you have to get through all of these evaluations and you got to do the salary adjustments. And like, I just can't do that stuff. And, um, at a big company you have to, it's your job. That's, you know, that kind of stuff. It has absolutely nothing to do with the small group of people doing amazingly creative work to build something that's going to fundamentally change the world. And, um, and I, so I don't know, is that part of the wiring that we're born with? Is that part of the upbringing? I have no idea, but, uh, for better or worse, uh, I seem to I seem to have that as well. You know, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, getting to be you know closer and work with people like Ev Williams, and you know I mean these are pretty much Silicon Valley folk heroes and sort of iconic figures in our culture. 
And I'm curious, what did you learn from people like that? Boy, that's a, ah, I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> I do find, another hour on just that, huh? That's right. Like, uh, I, I had the same experience because I got to work on Flickr early on and work with Stuart and Katerina as well. Um, uh, Stuart Butterfield and Katerina Fake, who are also both amazing product thinkers and entrepreneurs. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, what did I learn? I mean, part of it is work ethic. Um, uh, you know, I talk about being absolutely obsessed um, with an idea and can't shake it and have to work on it. But at the same time, there's a discipline around doing productive work and communicating it clearly and structuring it in such a way that people can help you with it and, and all of that sort of stuff, um, uh, as well as sticking with the idea and not getting distracted by the next shiny idea that, that I that comes with and, and instead synthesizing the things that you're super excited about into, yeah, really this, this, this driving work ethic and that, um, uh, especially now, uh, later in, in my career, um, with, uh, different set of priorities, right. And I have children now and stuff. So when I say work ethic, I don't mean being in the office for, uh, 18 hours a day, you know, like you hear some people do, I don't believe that at all. But I do, I, I, I do mean taking the, the responsibility uh, very, very seriously, uh, doing the best work all the time that we possibly can do, the, the highest priority things all the time, constantly reevaluating that, constantly challenging our own beliefs about what we, what we think is right, um, and living in a constant state of evaluating um, what we think we know to be true. All of those things, I think, largely um, – uh, I have I have seen uh, have tried to mirror in what I, in what I've seen around the, the successful people around me. Hmm. Well, Jeff, this has been incredible. Uh, I you know I've learned so much talking to you. So I have one last question for you, which is how we okay. close all our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow, unmistakable. What um, you've you've caught me with a with a great question. I think um, uh, I'm going to use the word that I used just a few minutes ago that um, that it that it it feels that what they are doing or an idea that I'm exposed to is um, inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's just an, an inevitability of it. I, um, I think back to right when I started my career, uh, I think how I got the job at Wired was that I sat down in this room with a small handful of people that worked there and just had absolutely no doubt in my mind that the web was the future. And this is at a time when CD-ROMs were still being published and AOL and CompuServe were fighting it out. And I'm like, nope, it's going to be the web. It's going to be anybody's going to be able to publish it's going to change everything. That's the way it's going to be. And, you know, like I'm 20 something years old and sitting in this magazine office and, and try and, and, and I felt this absolute inevitability about that. And it's been that way for each step in my career that what we're working on now, absolutely. That is the way the world is going. I just, I, I, uh, I don't like the term belief because it tends to be the acceptance of things without proof, but, that's as close as I get, right? That I fundamentally believe, even though I don't have proof right now, fundamentally believe that's the way the world is going to be. 
Uh, and that to me is a great definition for your term of uh, unmistakable. Awesome. Well, you've packed this with tons of poetic nuggets, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners. It's totally a pleasure. This was really fun. Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. I I think that a lot of people kind of do the like prejudgments. You know, they're like, what are people going to say? What's going to happen? What are the, what, and like all those unanswered, unanswered questions, it's like the uncertainty is too much. I mean, you talked about this, um, about, you know, you would rather live in the uncertainty. And I, you know, I, I feel like so many people are afraid of uncertainty. Um, and I am too. I mean, I, I think it's kind of scary to be uncertain all the time. But, you know, the reason a lot of us do it is like our culture, like in society is like very programmed to step away from uncertainty. It's all about like stability and comfort and kind of like finding yourself in the trappings of a stable life. And that doesn't really like do well for innovation or creativity. It's not really, those are not the parameters where like great work really thrives Writer and designer Jamie Verone joins us to talk about getting to the heart of what we're truly trying to say. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.